0: This episode is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. They invite you to attend their four-part webinar series, Telemedicine 201. The first episode, Video Visits Beyond Simple Cases, is on September 28th. Register today at acponline.org forward slash telemedicine201.
1: The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash-like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong.
0: Well, Paul... It's, it's the evening time. It's, uh, it's a holiday. So, we must be recording a podcast because what else are we going to do with our lives? What Paul? else
1: would I possibly be doing on Labor Day this <laughs> day to, to celebrate a day of rest and networking than recording yeah. with you, my friend Matt?
0: Of course, they won't be hearing this on Labor Day, but uh, this is the Curbsiders. This is a Tales from the Curbside episode. We're going to be covering three recent Curbsiders episodes. We'll be talking about colorectal cancer screening some antibiotic pearls, and then finally we'll be ending it up with some dermatology. But Paul, before we get into that, can you remind the audience who are we and what do we do? Sure, Matt. Happy to as always.
1: As a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And every so often, like uh, once a month-ish, we we go back and we just sort of reminisce about those expert interviews and try to condense them down into the the points that we found particularly meaningful or high yield or just kind of cool. Um, oftentimes, it's just sort of the latter case. Uh, and as you mentioned, this particular tales from the curbside, we're going to be talking about colorectal cancer screening, we're going to be talking about a lot of gross skin stuff, um, and then also antibiotic therapy, not necessarily in that order. In fact, I think the order we're going to go in is actually, why don't we start with the update to colorectal cancer screening? That was episode number 283 with Dr. Michael Berry of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, who sort of caught us up and, and told us about some of the recommendation changes, which I think got everyone very excited. So Matt, what about the the update and the recommendations? Got you excited? What was what was worth talking about?
0: This was the episode. This was produced by Dr. Elena Gibson, who did a great job, and so thank you to her. And on this, the reason we wanted to do this is because this was a big story. The American College of Gastroenterology, a bit earlier, I think it was in March, and then the USPSTF, maybe something like April, put these recommendations out, and they lowered the screening age. And there there was many reasons for that, but Probably the, the biggest reason was that it, it seems like the incidence of colorectal cancer in patients under 50 is, is on the rise, and now about 10.5% of new cases are under 50 years old, and colorectal cancer is one of those screenings, Paul. It's, it's not controversial in the sense that like screening works. Like it, If you screen people, there will be less cancers and less people will die from cancers, and it's significant, especially when you do this on a population level.
1: Yeah, I've not seen such wild enthusiasm for cancer screening change as I have when it was. It's the day the recommendation came out. People were like, all right, I'm talking to my patients about it. Like they were just, it's like people were waiting for it as opposed to some of the other ones, actually, like prostate cancer screening, which I think we'll just not talk about this episode or maybe ever. Um, yeah. Where people are a little bit on the fence. This one, I think people were genuinely excited about. And I think we're probably ordering it for younger patients even before insurance companies caught up to it.
0: And I don't know if it's just because I'm a dork and I like Marvel movies, uh, watch them with my kids, but I, I feel like Black, <laughs> where are we going? Black Panther dying as a young man of colorectal mm. cancer. I, I just feel like it just made it so much easier to because all the patients know about that. And I had young yeah. patients, even before these recommendations were final, asking me, like 40 year old men being like, hey, I need colon cancer screening. I'm like, well, maybe not right yet but i agree with you we are going to get it probably sooner and then of course the the recommendations came out so um it's nice when we have a test we know works and people actually are willing to get it
1: yeah i'm not and i'm not sure and this might be a little bit of a, a sidebar but in terms of the, the pandemic i i feel like has made a lot of my patients much more invested in their own health and their own preventive care like i think seeing People get sick, and 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 knowing that as as people with sort of who are multimorbid who do the worst with COVID, a lot of my patients are like, I I really would like to start being more on top of my health, or reaching out to me for for cancer screening. So this this and this is especially impactful.
0: Yeah, and the concept with I think the concept of like, oh, if I do this thing, I'm less likely to get sick from this disease or die from this disease. I think that's a concept now with the vaccines that has become you know people understand that it's it's a lot easier to explain flu vaccines and pneumonia vaccines. To people now, too, because because of those reasons,
1: it's one of the and I, I think you'll talk more about this. But one of the, the things I like about the recommendations is really the world is your oyster in terms of screening for colon cancer. They don't play favorites. Whatever you can get your patients to do, whatever your patient would like to use is the right one to use, as long as that's done in the context of shared decision making. So you could certainly colonoscopy, great one. And I think if you want to hopefully be done with it and the intervals can be far apart, that's great. But I think some patients are a little bit reticent and would pursue it if they thought it was absolutely necessary, but would prefer the stool-based testing like the, the DNA and fit test. And those patients have to be kind of okay with the the fact that the, the screening intervals are much shorter together. They have to do it you know, between one and three years. We're still kind of figuring that part out. Um, and that's that's not, by the way, I think we talked about this in the episode. You know, I've had patients report back. It's not As straightforward as you might think, like it's kind of a process and you have to have a fair amount of commitment, even for the home-based testing. So even though it's not, it doesn't involve anesthesia and travel, it does involve um, some steps. So even that's not necessarily easy. But the point being is that whether you do FIT or the stool DNA plus FIT test, or you do flex sigmoidoscopy, which still exists, even though we forget about it, or colonoscopy. It's a conversation between you and the patient deciding what intervals you want, how, I hate to use the term invasive, but exactly how much um, procedural stuff is involved in terms of the actual screening and having that conversation with the patients. And so I, I like the fact that it's, it's a very patient-centric kind of way to go about it, and they don't really play favorites there also, this is a continuation of the older recommendation. In older patients being between 75 and 85 years of age, screening should be offered on an individual basis depending on patient preferences and comorbidities. So up to age 85, they don't have a hard recommendation, it's more have a conversation with the patients. And I, I guess I was wondering from you, Matt, what that looks like when you're talking to your older patients in that age range, how does that conversation go and how do you decide who gets screened and who doesn't?
0: Well, I, I think the easiest decision in that 75 to 85 range is if you have a well-functioning, healthy older adult in the 75 to 85 range and they've never had screening, then those are great candidates, right? Because we know that that first colonoscopy really, if they haven't had a cancer yet, they can really benefit from that. It's a little bit less certain if someone's had screening up to age 75 and it's been okay and, and like, do you continue it or not? And usually for me, it's a shared decision with the patient and depends on what I think their biological age is. You know, if I think biologically they're functioning like a 60 or 65-year-old and they want to continue with testing, then I'll probably do that because if we find something, I think they're healthy enough to to undergo treatment. But it's somewhat of an evidence-free zone, you know, once you get up there in age. So I just try to think about life expectancy, their function. If we found anything, would they do anything about it? Do you have any different tact?
1: No, I think that's exactly right, though. I, I like the fact that you made the point, these are patients who've either not had screening or have had relatively okay screenings prior. So this these recommendations are specifically for your sort of low to medium risk patients. So for patients that have high risk who've had high-grade dysplasia before or a ton of polyps on prior colonoscopies, I think that this it's a different arithmetic than this recommendation. Um, yeah. And I think the conversation goes a little bit more differently because they are at substantially higher risk for developing colorectal cancer. And, and in that case, the intervention might actually be more meaningful for them. But for the average risk patient at an older age, their morbidity and their and their own preferences, that's exactly right. The, the biologic versus the uh, chronologic conversation is one that comes up often. So I, I think we have the same approach.
0: Today's sponsor is the American College of Physicians. ACP invites you to attend their free webinar series, Telemedicine 201. This is a highly educational series. It starts on September 28th and will enhance your telephone or virtual based patient encounter skills, which, let's be honest, we all need that these days. You're going to learn from expert and experienced telemedicine educators throughout this series of four one-hour webinars. On the first one, video visits beyond the simple cases, the experts are going to demonstrate best practices for conducting a virtual head-to-toe physical exam. They're going to talk about the strength and limitations of telemedicine for managing your patients, especially if they're medically complex and they're going to provide tips for leveraging tools to maximize the visit efficacy. Future episodes are going to talk about how you can engage your entire clinical team, how to leverage telemedicine for chronic disease management, and how to teach telemedicine to our trainees. Registrants are going to have access to the webinar recordings if they can't attend or want to refresh their knowledge. If you're like me, telemedicine has become a big part of your practice. And also, if you're like me, You're not sure if you're doing it right or not, so this is a great chance for you and me alike to make sure that we're doing best practices in telemedicine from people that actually know what they're doing. Register today at acponline.org forward slash telemedicine 201 to reserve your place. That's acponline.org forward slash telemedicine 201. I wanted to go back for a second to the the fit testing and the SDNA fit test because the fit test is a once that's the once a year test and that one is where they collect some stool sample and and I have had multiple patients try to turn that one in and have an issue with it like it wasn't accepted because it was in the wrong container or, or collected wrong incorrectly so you're right about that it is a bit difficult and I think for the DNA fit test that one can be anywhere between one and three years. And I think they have to collect a whole bowel movement for that one. Cause I was, lo- I was trying to look this up. Cause I, I was very curious, like as I've joked before, Paul, I'm approaching the screening age. So I don't want to know what I'm in for in case, <laughs> Sure. you know, so it, you're right. It is a little bit, you're, you're going to have to have, we have an office staff member that would like coach the patient, you know, what they have to do and give them the kit and answer their questions. But uh, you just got to prepare your patient for that. But a lot of patients do want to do that because they, you know, they don't want to take a day off of work and have someone have to pick them up, you know, t- for the colonoscopy. They don't want to deal with the prep if they don't have to. So it is, it's nice to know that as a patient, you have these options. And, and as long as you adhere to those screening intervals, that you're going to get a result from it. So,
1: yeah. So let's, let's transition, Matt. Let's move on to episode 284, which was our antibiotics primer with the great Dr. Adi Shah gave us practical tips and sort of a broad overview of how to use antibiotics, which is a lot to talk about in an hour and so episode show. (laughs) Yeah, But I still think, despite that, I think he gave us a lot of really useful frameworks, including just sort of the questions that he asked himself before he even prescribes. And I think that was one of the things that you wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah. So, and, and thank you to the great Dr. Nora Toronto for producing this episode and Beth Garbatelli, future Dr. Beth Garbatelli for making the wonderful infographics that went along with it. And yeah, like I love how, even before he's jumping right into like antibiotics, he is thinking, "Is this infectious or not infectious?" Which I I love to think about because I think Paul, this goes back to like maybe episode thirteen, Uncle Bob. No, Uncle Bob, and maybe no, it was it was maybe the pneumonia episode with Uncle Bob, so it was a bit later than that. Uh, but he said when someone's calling him, and telling him, "Oh, I have a patient. I'm admitting them with pneumonia," he thinks. I'm not going to believe that this is pneumonia. Right. I'm going to have to convince myself that that's what's going on here. And I think if you're an infectious diseases doctor, like a, a big part of your job is de-escalating antibiotics and knowing when not to prescribe. And so I love that you start off with this question of infectious versus non-infectious because you got to think, Is it could this be drugs? Is it a malignancy? Is it inflammatory? And uh, it, it's a great question. He does consider what antibiotics has this person been on, What do I think is the site that's like most likely infected? And that's going to influence what bugs that you would cover. And then, you know, do I need to get testing before I start antibiotics? And then finally, is there source control needed? Like, are we going to have to cut or drain something in order for this infection to go away? And I just thought that if you start that way, it's almost like a form of stewardship. And if you don't know the answer to some of those questions, you can ask your colleagues uh, for help. But it is great to get inside the the workings of an i d doctor Paul because they're way smarter than us uh the i d doctors some of the best among us,
1: oh yeah, for sure, and i, I do I think the, one of the other questions he asks themselves is, has the patient had something like this in the past, and what worked for them, and like what do we treat them with and was it effective are also good questions to ask, which goes back to my you know my favorite thing to do, which is just to cheat when I'm trying to work up a patient like if they have a pain someplace. And I look to see if there's been imaging done there before. And if they have a presumed <laughs> infection in a place, I will look to see if that's been infected before and when what's happened. It's just, it's, <laughs> pathology tends to repeat itself and it's just much easier when you already know what you're dealing with and trying to come up de novo every single time. So I, I like the idea of what has worked before. I feel like it's such a useful question to ask for everything, but especially for infectious disease stuff.
0: Paul, my next question for you is, when I'm prescribing antibiotics, I like to give a really long course as long as possible. And I'm usually going to choose a big gun just because I want to make sure I get everything. So do you see any issues with my approach and can you teach <laughs> me to do better?
1: No, I mean, it sounds like you've nailed it on the first try. Yeah. Just as broad as you can possibly go for as long as possible. Just really sterilize the gut. Um, no, I, um, obviously that's all, all terrible. I mean, so first of all, let's actually pause and we'll say a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is like outpatient management and some of it's inpatient, but it, it does not necessarily apply to the incredibly sick patients. Like I think everyone agrees that you start very broad and narrow things down when someone's stable and you have a better sense of what's going on with them. So I, I, let's put that on the table and then discount it before we move forward. But I, I think- what Thank you, you're Paul. Probably- I
0: probably shouldn't joke around when, <laughs> when there's lives on the line. Yes, I, we're, we're going to be talking about some of the relatively mild outpatient or less, you know, mild infections- uh, and Paul, Paul, walk us through what we should do with these.
1: Yes. Thankfully, the, I don't often see patients that are terribly sick in, in the outpatient setting. So I, I I wanted to actually take this opportunity to talk about the relatively recent ACP best practice advice for antibiotic duration. There have been a lot of exciting studies that have come out that show shorter courses of antibiotics for things like um, community-acquired pneumonia and skin soft tissue infections, those kind of things. We don't have to treat for integers or seven. We can actually go much shorter than that, and the patients will do just as well. So they gave fairly specific advice about things. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go through them real quick, but they recommend limiting antibiotic treatment to a duration of five days when managing COPD exacerbations and uncomplicated bronchitis who have importantly clinical signs of a bacterial infection. So things like increased sputum purulence or uh, increased sputum volume. Similarly for community acquired pneumonia, a minimum of five days, they say you can extend therapy after five days, but that's based on the patient's clinical picture. So again, you actually have to be a doctor and examine the patient and figure out if they're still sick or not. For cystitis, short course antibiotics, I think we've all adjusted relatively well to this at this point. There's wild enthusiasm for this already, but five days of nitrofurantoin or three days of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or a single dose of phosphomycin if you can get it paid for. But in uncomplicated pyelonephritis, even short course uh, Fluoroquinolones or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole based on susceptibility. So, I think the guidelines say 14 days. I think a Twitter survey gave us a, an answer of five to seven days, and, and patients may even be okay, if I remember right, Matt.
0: Yeah, for trim sulfa in patients with uncomplicated pyelonephritis, they were saying maybe even down to seven days now. And I tried to look into it a, l- a little bit, and it, I couldn't immediately find the article. So, I would say stay tuned on that before you shorten the duration. but. It's seeming like we're in general we're trending towards shorter courses, and a lot of this, Paul, too. I think is if you're seeing the patient or if you're following up with the patient within like 48 to 72 hours is what I like to do, and make sure that they're getting better from the infection. Because a lot of the times they do get better. Maybe if someone's really sick with pylo, that's one of the few times it takes sometimes up to five days in my experience. But you know, we're talking about most of these infections here. Patients get better pretty quickly and you can feel comfortable stopping the antibiotics early. Specifically yeah, pneumonia, I, right?
1: Yeah, right, exactly. But I, I think even that the last recommendations about skin and soft tissue infections, where they say five to six days was something against strep, I think in a different episode with Dr. Tatanji, if I remember correctly, she does the same thing where it's very short-term follow-up, make sure that you're treating the appropriate bug, make sure the patient's getting better. So I, I think a yeah. lot of these short courses... Are kind of contingent upon the patient's access to you, and you making sure you're doing appropriate follow up, and things are resolving the way that you expect them to resolve.
0: I wanted to point out for these short course antibiotics, like for COPD exacerbation, for uncomplicated cystitis, and I think the other one, which was not part of the ACP guideline, but was rhin- rhinosinusitis, Paul, like the fluoroquinolones should not be used for those uh, for most patients unless they have like a known resistant resistance pattern. Um, and, and the re- reason is we've talked about it many times on the show, fluoroquinolones have you know, muscle and tendon side effects. If the p- person has myasthenia, it can throw them in a crisis. You know, there's all sorts of things with fluoroquinolones that we try to avoid. Uh, there's QT prolongation and drug-drug interactions. So definitely don't just like give everyone five days of fluoroquinolone. I, I would just like to add that into this list. And, and Paul, I think speaking of pet peeves, I believe we had some pet peeves from the great Dr. Shah on this episode. So, can you run us through some of those?
1: Yeah, let's let's reframe even as pitfalls to avoid, which sounds less like it's things that will annoy him and things that might just be potentially unnecessary or harmful to patients. But Dr. Shah quickly goes through things like he says, PipTazo has good anaerobic coverage, so you don't have to add metronidazole to the regimen if that's your if that's your angle. Along the same lines, he doesn't have any, it doesn't seem like he has problems specifically with metronidazole, but he also mentions you don't need it for aspiration coverage.
0: And I think that was part of a bigger conversation that the new pneumonia guideline just recommends like, please don't treat everybody for aspiration pneumonia and add clindamycin or metronidazole. Yep. I think that was, that was part of that too.
1: Right. That That's exactly right. Um. There, I feel like this is like a perpetual board question, but daptomycin, BT-dubs, does not treat yeah. pneumonia. It's broken down by surfactant. Like, I think that's something that can make your medical students feel good if you ask them about that. You mentioned QT intervals, so just be mindful of those with fluoroquinolones or patients who are already QT-prolonging agents, and the same thing goes for azithromycin. Just take a look at the medication list, maybe peep an old EKG before you just throw it out with wild abandon. And then lastly, but not leastly, uh, and importantly, is... Just because the patient's admitted, and I understand that billing and payment are a separate discussion, but from a clinical standpoint, just because a patient's admitted does not mean they need i v antibiotics. If you have an oral medication that has good bioavailability that is actually targeted against the organism and gets the organ that it's supposed to be getting to, you can just give them the oral if they're tolerating p o s and it's that's again it goes back to thinking about what you're treating and what you're going after and if if you feel comfortable about that, you can transition to oral therapy, even in the hospital, you can be bold,
0: yeah. Yeah, especially once the patient is showing some signs of clinical stability, you know, the the heart rate, the fever, the breathing, any of the labs, you know, once, they start, once they're start, starting to just look better, you definitely can think about that. And and the the list of the antibiotics we've just talked about, Paul, metronidazole is one with good oral bioavailability, fluoroquinolones have excellent oral bioavailability, trimsulfa does, uh, you can, uh, every uh, doxycycline does, which every ID doc's favorite drug, so- <laughs> yeah there's a list of those which which we could put in the show notes as well. It's from a Paul Sachs blog post of course because he teaches us lots of incredibly useful things. And if people want to hear it, go back to the antibiotic episode. We packed it full of stuff and we'll probably do a 2.0 episode at some point in the future because it seemed like people really wanted more on the antibiotics front. So we heard you. We will we will likely do that sometime, probably probably in the spring or in 2022, let's say that. Um, <laughs> sure. But let's move on, Paul, because you know skin problems, we, we see them a lot in primary care. Of course, this is number 285, common skin complaints in primary care, or you could just say it was a Dermsiders episode with our chief of dermatology, Dr. Helena Pesheka. production by Maddie Maddog Morgan and Edison Eddie Jang, and graphics by Eddie as well. So, Paul- you know, I got to talk about some feet here. <laughs> I, Just I, gotta start with I know you sure. love to talk about feet on the show. Uh, and and we talked about some toenails, which are probably the grossest part of the feet. And anicomycosis. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say
1: the the sock removal image of the cloud of dust was actually sock a little puff. bit gross. Yeah, the sock puff did, was worse for me than the toenail thing. Um, I'm sorry. To have yeah, to that's true.
0: On. And yeah, so for the audience, um, I, I mean, I imagine most people listening to this are in clinical medicine, but- uh sock puff is when you take off someone's sock and they have those just kind of flaky crusty toenails and you just get this puff and you feel like you're hopefully you're wearing an N95 when that happens because <laughs> it's happened to me many times Paul and it's it's terrifying anyway yeah, yeah my favorite pearl from this episode was the use of 40% urea cream and she said, "Well, you know, it's it's really hard to get a mycologic cure and in some cases even a you know, a cosmetic cure, but urea, a lot of patients they they just want nails that like are not so heaped up and they want to be able to put a little polish on there and have the nail look smooth. And urea kind of she's like, "Hey, yeah, just tell them to put it on there and and it gets smaller." And I'm like, "So it just like melts away and" <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't know that we got a firm answer on that, Paul, but it, I, I've i been dying to try it. I have about three patients right now who are trying this 40% urea cream at home and uh, we'll, I will report back. Uh, Please. Yeah. One thing I will caution the audience because I, you know, I love the Hopkins antibiotic guide, Paul, and I was reading it and in there they, they mentioned, they're like, you should probably put some like tape or something around the skin of the toenail that you're treating with this because- I guess uh, maybe that was if you're doing occlusion, but they they just said it could be harsh on the skin. I don't think it's going to melt your skin off, but maybe it'll get like a little macerated if you put too much of it on there. So
1: sure. So the substance that melts toenails, you think it might actually be a little bit skin irritating?
0: Yeah, I you know the skin <laughs> and the toenails are very different, Paul. I don't I don't True. think you understand dermatology.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, you make a fair point.
0: But uh, you know, after after that slight, did you want to teach the audience anything about, from this episode, or remind them of any any pearls?
1: Sure. Yeah. No, let's let's talk about another, uh, I think, chronic internal medicine uh, topic that comes up. We talked about acrocordons or otherwise known as skin tags a little bit. Uh, as a reminder, these are papules, meaning if you close your eyes and feel them, you can feel them with your thumb. They are, are raised up. They are, they're usually stalked. They're usually in areas that have um, friction or where skin touches skin, so the intertriginous areas and usually flesh toned or can even be hyperpigmented. So the, the point that she made was more of a pragmatic one. I, I am personally, am not removing these in the office myself, but in order to get insurance to pay to get them removed, there has to be some documentation that they are actually um, irritated or causing some kind of problem for the patient themselves. They, it's it, You can't just for, for, just for cosmesis and get it paid for um, is the long and the short of it. So, But happily, well, not happily, I shouldn't say, but a lot of the times they are in areas that can get irritated. They can be areas that are sort of either shaved or collars get caught on or jewelry can get caught on. And so if you look very, very closely, you can see signs of irritation. So typically, uh, Dr. Pracheka talks about, you can usually find one or two that are the real bothersome ones among patients who have lots of them. Those are the usually ones that she goes for. She's usually not trying to get rid of a whole field of acrochordons, if I remember correctly, but you can usually find a couple that are especially bothersome that she goes after. Right. And she also makes the point that she sends almost all of them for pathology, which I thought was interesting and sort of just because... I don't live with enough low-grade anxiety. She mentioned the fact that every once in a while, she's surprised and something comes back as a melanoma that she thought was just going to be a skin tag or, or something else um, that, much more that worrisome. That just
0: blew my mind, Paul. That was that was something. Yeah, she said, she's like, most people by the time they finish a derm residency will have that kind of a story.
1: Yeah, right, and right, right.
0: Yeah, so that she's just said if it's... Right, right. Have a low threshold to send them for pathology. But I, I think like... You know some of the really small ones, if they, they all look the same and everything. Um, And a lot of people just want them gone. Like you said, they're catching on clothing or they just don't like the way they look. So I think it's, yeah, just throw your patients a bone, say that it's irritated, send them to dermatology. Derm can remove it for them. Actually, same thing goes for seborrheic keratosis, those lesions, Paul, like usually, you know, those like waxy stuck on ones, Um, Patients are always asking me about those. And if they get irritated, they they can get removed too. And usually they send those for pathology as well. We're sponsored today by 10,000. They are a fantastic athletic apparel brand that makes this minimalist, beautiful, comfortable, and very durable athletic gear. I've been wearing the seven-inch interval shorts It's a lined short, and what I love about it is it has this no-bounce pocket, which I've talked about before. As a runner, if you're putting your phone in your pocket of some of those standard cotton or mesh shorts, that thing is bouncing around and could cause some minor injuries, but these no-bounce pockets, for me, are a huge game-changer. And of course, because this is new-age gear, it has silver ion for odor protection. It's very breathable and lightweight. And you know what? Their gear is great because they test it on a team of over 200 athletes. They also sent me this very lightweight shirt, which is like the most comfortable workout shirt that I've ever worn. It's breathable. It's quick drying. You feel like you're not even wearing a shirt. But for me, I, I want to wear a shirt. So I'm I'm glad it's there. They have over 10,000 five-star reviews and you know that I'm not the only one that loves this brand because they have over 10,000 five-star reviews. And if you're worried about trying it out, don't worry because they have free shipping and returns and a lifetime guarantee. 10000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10000.cc and enter code CURB to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10000.cc and enter code curb
1: I was excited to make this transition because this is an honor of Stuart um, who, who we've not talked to in a while but I, it just it felt very much like it could come from him but Matt we've talked about the sock puff but we also talked a little bit about fluff so perhaps you'd like to <laughs> tell me about uh ferocious fluff and the fluff test I think that was something else that you wanted to discuss tonight
0: yeah this was uh, we talked about our patient Fergie she was uh, she was on her yacht and she was <laughs> she had noticed she had noticed she had some hypopigmented lesions in like uh, the sweaty areas of like her upper chest and back. And uh, we diagnosed her with the fluff test where if you place your index finger on either side of the spot and you pull them, your fingers apart, then it it raises up. It's almost like getting the hackles up of this lesion, and you can see this fine like white scale on there. And, uh, th- so that's a way that you can make the diagnosis at the bedside, which is really cool. There's not that many, you know, it's a, it's, it seems like a pretty specific test and there's not that many times you can do that kind of thing at the bedside and like be pretty sure of the diagnosis. The other thing that I thought was really cool about this, Paul is ketoconazole shampoo. It's a great medicine. I use it for, you know, dandruff, seborrheic keratosis for my patients who get it in their eyebrows, like sides of their nose, their scalp. And, They just put it on, they leave it on five, 10 minutes and then rinse it off. And it does a great job. And turns out it works for this tinea as well. Hopkins antibiotic guide says use it like for one to four weeks. And then she mentioned that it's not the kind of thing, it doesn't smell great. It's a little harsh on the skin. So you're not going to want to use it like every day for the rest of your life. But she said for maintenance therapy, you might want to use it like weekly. But what I really loved about the ketoconazole thing, Paul, is they used to give it to patients like by mouth. And then they would tell them, exercise vigorously about two hours after you've taken it because you'll sweat and you'll you'll have high concentration of the ketoconazole in your sweat and it'll deliver more of that medication to the skin, which, come on, Paul, that's just, that's super cool. I wish we could still do it.
1: I mean, to be clear, they they were to take a ketoconazole pill. They were not drinking ketoconazole shampoo. I just want to make sure that we're advising Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, no, yeah.
0: The oral (laughs) ketoconazole, the pill, the pill. Sure. And, but in any uh, case,
1: it doesn't uh, sound like we're doing that anymore.
0: No, we're not doing that anymore. It turns out ketoconazole, you know, it's one of those ones, it it wreaks havoc on the SIP system. You know, there's a lot of drug-drug interactions, and then there's the hepatotoxicity. So, sadly, we can't do that. But, Paul, what what can we do for our patients, especially those who have this generalized itching, which is... Is really common. I found, Paul, a, a lot of my older patients especially uh, are the ones that complain of just like generalized itching, and maybe you don't see anything on their skin at all, just excoriations.
1: Yeah, we, it, it was a great discussion. I I, liked, I found this all very, very helpful, and, and especially in older patients, uh, generalized pruritus can be multifactorial, and it often is. Um, it, it's worth knowing that when we're talking about chronic pruritus, that's pruritus that's been going on for longer than than six weeks there's almost always some component of xerosis or just kind of dry skin but there's lots of other stuff that can actually cause generalized pruritus and and Dr. Besheka breaks it down into pruritus with rash and pruritus without rash and i think most of what we're talking about here is is without rash it's sort of more the the dry skin and you might see some excoriation where the patient's scratching in areas that they can reach which is sometimes an an important clue but some of the things that she brought up i i found fast i mean all the stuff she brought up i found fascinating but the the, the medications not surprisingly you know, meds can do everything, but they can also cause itch. And some of them surprised me a little bit like statin therapy. It didn't occur to me. It decreases sebum production because it lowers cholesterol. So as a result, you end up with drier skin. So something to think about. I'm not sure I would stop the statin because a patient's itchy, but it's just, it's a consideration. (laughs) Uh, Opioid therapy for the histamine release, obviously aspirin, you know, which, you know, half the patients are on and then specific chemotherapy agents like the PD-1 inhibitors can also cause generalized pruritus as well. Before you attribute it all just to cirrhosis and dry skin. Probably in your older patients, they're owed a little bit of a workup um, if it's not terribly, terribly obvious. And so some of the things that she suggested checking are a CBC, look for erythrocytosis, checking a TSH to make sure they're not hypothyroid, checking liver enzyme tests to make sure there's not biliary stasis, which is of course a notorious causer of generalized pruritus. And then one that I had not thought of before this episode was checking an LDH in your older patients because this can be a presenting sign of lymphoma as well. So I found that, a really helpful and also lately terrifying thing to think about just because I see so much uh, arthritis in my practice.
0: So when you prescribe treatment for this, uh, 15 grams, that's enough to last them for a month?
1: No, probably not even a couple of days. Um, <laughs> so I, I can't remember, you, you bust out the statistic of how much equates to how much body surface area, but basically you want big old jars of whatever it is that you're prescribing. And a lot of it might just not even be prescribed, it might be over the counter. And I say I say jars with intention. That was the other tip that I that I love for this is that things that come in pump containers have alcohol in them often to thin them out so they can be pumped. And as a result, they can be drying to some extent. So if you're going to prescribe something or tell them to pick something up over the counter, um, have them get a big old jar of it because it takes a lot for generalized xerosis. And then also she prefers ointments over creams. If this is the case, if you're thinking this is dry skin. And then the other practical tip is to apply it when the skin's slightly damp, not completely dry uh, along those lines. Patients who are itchy love hot showers. Unfortunately, hot showers actually tend to um, remove more oils than cold showers. So as a result, they can make things worse in the end. So minimizing hot showers, I won't say don't do them entirely. So a lot of practical advice when prescribing stuff.
0: And the for the audience, uh, it's, it's about 30 grams can cover the body one time. And if someone has generalized itching, they have huge surface areas that they're going to be covering so you can prescribe the jar, which is 454 grams, which is about a one-pound jar. And I think if you're if you're prescribing a steroid cream, uh, triamcinolone, that a lot of pharmacies will stock like a, a jar of triamcinolone cream. And then, but just like a jar of petroleum jelly or a jar of you know, you pick your ceramide-containing ointment. Those are good ones to to look for. She actually mentioned that she only really prescribes the steroid containing cream if you know she thinks there's inflammation and and you know trying to treat that helps with the itch a little bit. And Paul, I mentioned I mentioned the one pound jar of Triamcinolone, but I, I want to be clear with the audience. We're not recommending you prescribe a, a one pound jar of steroid cream and indefinitely give that to your patients with uh, with cirrhosis or just generalized puritis. No, it it's really that that was just an example of something that comes in a one pound jar. In fact, she talked to us about prescribing steroids, Paul, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she she was really saying she doesn't give topical steroids unless she thinks there's inflammation going on.
1: Right. And specifically by inflammation, the presence of a rash is what she's looking for here. So if she doesn't see a rash, then it's hard to call it inflammation because there's not the cardinal signs of it. So it's it's just if she sees a rash, we should be giving steroids. And again, we, we treat for the shortest period of time uh, when we're doing that.
0: Right. So keep them... And yeah, keep keep the patient's skin uh moist, uh keep it keep it uh give them an emollient. And you know, if you wanna really talk about dermatitis and and uh the pajama, remember we talked about wet pajamas, Paul, way back on our <laughs> yeah, I think oh it was God. on a dermatitis episode. Yep. We are talking about uh contact dermatitis, irritant, allergic, you know, all those all those different types of dermatitis, eczema. Um and uh, yeah, wet pajamas is where the patient like showers lotions up and then puts wet pajamas on top of it. So that cool. way it's like kind of holding everything in. I don't know if I could sleep, but I, we had a patient when I was in the military. It was a, it was like a, a young airman and he had, he must have been allergic to something in the barracks and he was just, he had the worst eczema like I've ever seen. It was like generalized, it was everywhere. And he just like, we just gave him a couple jars of petroleum jelly and he would like shower, pat dry, Lathers like whole body like head to toe and put on wet pajamas and he was it made a dramatic improvement over the course of like 48 hours but it was Good. desperate times paul
1: oh well there's just nothing more miserable than itch that doesn't get better so i yeah I, I, I can imagine it would not take much to convince a going through this to actually give that a try so it, it, right that, that tracks
0: so with that image of going to going to sleep in wet pajamas <laughs> we will take you all to the outro
1: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get
0: our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And with all of that, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And we would be
1: remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterley for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you, and goodbye.